Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. We're a podcast about how we talk to people who believe and belong and behave differently from ourselves, and what role the things we hold sacred might play in that. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Giles Fraser, the Reverend Canon Giles Fraser, to give him his full title, although I'm sure there should be a doctor in there somewhere, as he did a PhD on Nietzsche. Until December this year, he's been writing a weekly column in The Guardian called Loose Cannon, and he appears regularly on BBC Radio 4 as a Moral Maze panellist and on Thought for the Day. He gained real public notoriety in 2011 after he resigned from his position as a canon at St Paul's Cathedral during the period you might remember when it was completely surrounded by an occupied London encampment and the cathedral were trying to work out how to deal with that. I spoke to him about his somewhat spiky approach to public conversation, why he campaigned for Brexit and how he sees an evangelistic purpose in talking about religion to its cultured despisers. morning in the study of Giles Fraser and it is distractingly wonderful with stacks of books up to the ceiling so I'm going to try and keep my mind on the conversation. Messy too isn't it? It's, it's messy in a wonderful way I'm finding it a very charming room to be in. Um, Giles thank you so much for speaking to me today. The first thing I want to ask you is what I'm asking everyone and that's about what you hold sacred the thing that's very close to your heart beyond the people that you love whether a principle or a value something that no amount of money uh, would make you give up that you react emotionally as well as rationally to when it's attacked i hate bullies i think that's probably it it's not a thing that I, that's not a positive it's a that's a negative isn't it so um yeah. but uh i think right from uh my childhood i've had a thing about bullies and the bullied and my default position of which i find it almost impossible to be budged from is a um is a defence of those who are bullied, even if they're in the wrong. <laughs> it's yeah, That's quite a non-negotiable for me. And why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I could give you the sort of psychological reason, and I think that's probably because I was... Uh, uh, I, I think after, you know, quite a bit of psychotherapy and, uh, and reflection, I think it's probably because I was beaten quite a lot at school and I was extremely angry with the injustice of that, the sort of institutional bullying. And so I've always had an eye for the... Uh, bullying as a, uh, a function of an organisation as well as uh, being a, a, an individual failing. Um, but but uh, the psychological stuff aside, I mean, it seems to me that the, the priorities of Jesus are precisely to be on the side of the downtrodden and the oppressed and the bullied. Um, and uh, that's sort of good news to the poor, freedom to the captive, sight to the blind. So that's my... Um, and, and I'm not... I'm a... I'm a Politically, I'm a lefty, but um, my my um, commitment is not to left-wing politics per se, but it is to uh, being on the side of the bullied. I'd love to hear a bit about the spiritual or religious or non-religious background uh, to your childhood, perhaps your school as well as your family. So um, I come from a fairly secular background. My father um, is Jewish but uh, spent his life trying to escape from his Judaism uh, 
And my mother is not Jewish, uh, came from a poor working class uh, family in Leicestershire, but spent her time trying to escape that. And Jewish was one of the ways of escaping it. So the joke of my background is I had a Jewish father who pretended he wasn't and a non-Jewish mother who pretended she was. Um, but it wasn't terribly religious, and I got a bit of religion by osmosis through posh school. But I was a default atheist until second year of university, I suppose, when um, I started to question the background assumptions of my um, of my uh, upbringing. So I think that's probably where I changed. It took quite a long time for me to uh, acknowledge that there been some fundamental shift in me, but uh, I'm a failed atheist. It's interesting. Lots of the people that I'm talking to about this, uh, who I think are interesting in how they speak to people different th- from themselves, have transitioned in some way across divides, feel like they are bilingual or have a foot in both camps. Yeah. Do you find it easier to talk to people who are atheists because you know how that feels? I'm, I'm less and less tolerant of atheists. <laughs> I know we're supposed to say completely the reverse. I mean, I did my PhD on Nietzsche. I'm fascinated by good atheism. I think when I, the reason I say I'm less and less tolerant of atheists is I think uh, atheism is a rich and interesting tradition which has been uh, sadly debased in recent years. Um, I think uh, atheism's not going through uh, an intellectually rich time. Um, I think it's very successful at the moment, but I think it's uh, successful but uninteresting. Um, and um, I sort of slightly bemoaned... Uh, the, the decline, the intellectual decline of, uh, of atheism. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course I do. Um, <laughs> although I'm sure I'll talk to someone else who'll uh, argue the other, the other way. So it, it's notable when, uh, obviously, I read your columns. We um, have worked together briefly um, on the Moral Maze and your approach to how you speak to people in public debate does seem to come out of that slight impatient. There's a, there's a spikiness about your approach. Um, how much of that is deliberate and why have you adopted uh, that kind of tone? I, I, I sort of... Am frustrated with the uh, the idea that public debate simply has to be like the ecumenical movement, um, you know, us being nice to each other, constantly being nice to each other, and uh, I quite like the idea of robust disagreement. I mean, I really do. And yes, it's emotional because I'm afraid I'm an emotional type of person, and uh, that's you know, I I think and feel an equal measure about subject. Though the interesting thing about moral maze, for example, in terms of a model of how you disagree, is uh, the people. You know, that those of us who are panellists there disagree really quite strongly. I mean, we're chosen for our disagreement. Um, and yet we are we get on extremely well. I mean, personally, we get on extremely well. That may be why friendship's rather important to me. So somebody like Melanie Phillips, um, with whom I don't think there's a single thing on which she and I would agree. And yet personally, I think she's a total sweetie and we uh, we get on really well. And, and that's really important to me. And I think that uh, be able to have robust, spiky um, public debate, but also um, to be friends with each other. That's why I'm terribly disappointed with these silly Labour MPs at the moment who are saying, well, I won't be friends with people uh, if they disagree with me. Grow up. I mean, really grow up. So on the moral maze it works because, as you know, after the show you go for a meal as yeah. a sort of way of making up. And, and alcohol. Yeah, and reminding yourself about the human relationships that underlie the deep disagreement. That, But that's actually really hard to do um, in, the, in, in the places where our public debates are actually happening generally, on social media or in the broader media. And therefore I'm really interested in this idea of what is the role of emotions and how much are we kicking each other into fight or flight and therefore we end up in either a very 
kind of aggressive uh, conversation where we're not really trying to understand each other at all or we uh, withdraw completely and we only talk to people who will reinforce our view. So there's lots to say about that. I mean, first of all, I'd say I much prefer aggressive to passive aggressive. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really, I think that's a really important. Um, so, so much of what passes for uh, non-aggressive communication is actually just very aggressive, but quiet. Um, so, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm really not interested in that. Um, the role of social media in, uh, in you know, creating this intemperate, um, public debate has got to do with the fact that the debate is anonymised. I mean, it's exactly the opposite of the moral May situation is you just don't know who you're talking to. You know, so and, and it's very interesting that when people are incredibly mean and rude to each other, if you actually then engage on a human level, that tends to dissipate. So all good communication, even spiky communication, is personal communication. And the more that the more that the communication is sort of distanced from the personal, the more dysfunctional it becomes. And that's what happens on social media. You know, one of the great downsides of social media. Well, it is the great downside of social media. One of the things that I'm sort of experimenting with myself, because obviously in my job, I talk to a lot of people who believe different things from me and have different views on, you know, the role of the church and, and lots of other things, really. Um and in the past, when I've done Thought for the Day or, or a debate uh, with atheists or whatever, I get quite a lot of abuse. Because I'm working in that setting, say on Twitter, where I don't know who the person is, I feel like it's really important to to start with, and it's such a horrible word, but to start with politeness or to start with calm, to start with kindness even sometimes, even yeah. even if people are really being, you know, you know, you know, rapey death threats, I'm not going to engage with, obviously. Uh, but people who were just sort of using tired old insults about theists or whatever, I'll say, um, you know, thanks for getting in touch. I'm sorry to hear that you found that hard or whatever. And just try and take the... Doesn't, t- doesn't have to so, OK, I understand that. And maybe I should do that. But 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 sometimes there's something formulaic and slightly disingenuous about that, which uh, and I'm very grumpy on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not a... And I, I don't know if I like myself very much on Twitter, but that's just how it is. Yeah. I mean, uh, and the, the rows I get into... Sometimes I feel that I feel like I'm sort of respecting somebody by rowing them properly and meeting them on on the terms in which they meet me. Yeah, uh, something that maybe I may not have expressed that quite right, but but I, but I, it certainly goes wrong a lot. Yeah, it, it certainly goes wrong a lot. I think the other thing that you said just to just to bring that in is this business about echo chambers. Yeah. Um, now that really I'm very aware of. Uh, of that because um being a left-wing brexiter for instance yeah. my i i speak against my echo chamber and speaking against your echo chamber is a is a very is a very uncomfortable thing to do absolutely so you get into quite a lot of uh, and the temperature rises and you follow it you know you've got to be careful not to there's a sort of mimetic quality isn't there to that you're, you're copying other people's uh bad behaviour very easily on Twitter when other people are copying mine. I've, I've, I've tried to bin Twitter a couple of times, yeah. you know, but I'm addicted to it. Yeah. <laughs> do you feel like that kind of grumpiness on Twitter, some of the arguments you get into, uh, how does that sit with your role as a priest? Do you think there's, you know, there's a heritage of priests who are take that way of debating? Is it something that's a bit uncomfortable? Well, I do. Re- so I react quite strongly. This is going on quite strongly to the idea that uh, the main job of a clergy person is to be professionally nice. I think there's a long and complicated history about the uh, the formation of Anglicanism, the Church of England, where the Church of England... 
was defined by priority of pastoral care. Um, I mean, I think the Church of England really sort of claims its identity after the English Civil War when it becomes a peace treaty, basically, between different warring warring factions. Um, And the terms of this peace treaty are people are all prayed together, but they won't talk about theology. Uh, We're afraid of people disagreeing with each other. It's basically the English dinner party rules set to set to the tune of Handel's Messiah. So um, (laughs) that's that that's that's what it felt like to be in uh, St Paul's Cathedral anyway, which of course is the great temple of um, you know the sort of post Civil War uh, peace treaty. I understand that peace treaty. I understand the need for it, but I I feel a little bit more like um, I, I think it's sort of robbed us of our some of our sort of existential intensity. I don't want to be going around with a pike staff and like running people in or chopping the heads off kings. Yeah. Even doing that. I understand that, you know, we're not doing that anymore and there's too much of that in the world. But nonetheless, it is not my job to be professionally nice. Yeah. And those who want to make clergy yeah. just be parish visitors, sit holding hands of people yeah. and not actually um, debate or sit in their studies or, you know, that, that's one of the problems of Anglicanism. Yeah. So I quite like to model some Something a little bit different to that wet handshake, nice. The Rowan Atkinson as a vicar. I may get, you see, I may get that wrong. This is what I did when I first got ordained. I used to, I, I, <laughs> it's extraordinary to admit, but I was so sort of anxious about that being sort of that the projection that that that, that, would, that I used to swear way more. I mean, I swear quite a lot, but I used yeah. to swear way more than I do now. It was it was a reaction to the projection of niceness, yeah. which everybody had a certain assumption about you, yeah. and it it sort of you had to you had to uh, you had to prick it and yeah, yeah. pop it and you know. Uh, and that was that was my way of doing it then, and it wasn't very successful, and it wasn't really a good thing to do. But I understood why I did it. Yeah, um, it feels like there's two threads in the New Testament. You know, to uh, do the slightly cliche thing and, and and see what Jesus thinks about this. Uh, in that you've got the Jesus who does turn tables in the temple is pretty. Uh, Acidic with the Pharisees yeah. at various points. Yeah. Uh, you can you can imagine that being quite an emotionally charged yeah. conversation. But then, quite clearly, there's love your enemies, pray for those who persecute yeah. you, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, which seems to be the underlying theology of something like the civil rights movement or other groups that have managed to really change minds across difference. Yes. So I love Stanley Howass's comment about love your enemies. Uh, he says about that, it says love your enemies. It doesn't say you shouldn't have any. <laughs> Now that's a sort of, no, I sort of get that really. I mean, you know, of course we have enemies. Maybe that's not the right language, but, you know, something like enemies, we do have them. But the question is whether you, the, the, the particular identifying feature of Christianity is you love your enemies, you try to love your enemies, you're called to love your enemies. Um, and, 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 and the illusion of love and niceness is a very bad and dangerous one. So what does it look like now to take something like the underlying theology of the civil rights movement, which was basically, you know, the double, the famous double victory quote where Martin Luther King says, you know, we can match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering, you know, send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our homes by night and we will still love you, win our freedom and we will also win your hearts and it will be a double victory. One of my live questions is, what on earth does it mean to do that in our public conversations without just being nice, without just being wet without having yeah anything that we are prepared to fight for anything that we are prepared to stand our ground on feels like i don't see many models of anyone holding that i mean luckily he didn't have twitter account did he um (laughs) (laughs) 
winner. Yeah, he did have feet of yeah. clay, by the way. Yeah. Um, Look, I don't, I don't know the answer to this, and I don't want to hold up unrealistic models of behaviour that we can't uh, even begin to aspire to. I think we are living in a age of spiky debate, and spiky debate is a part of the, it's, it's a p- part of what we need to get used to. So I think the question is the wrong way around. Actually, uh, the question is not um, how does it, the question is how how the church gets more spiky in its debate. Okay, um, I want the church to be more participatory. Uh, I wanted to argue harder and better. Now, I don't think that's inconsistent with uh, loving your enemies. The thing is, and and this is, what does love look like? Love is an extremely personal uh, thing to talk about. And uh, Twitter is the most depersonalised form of communication. So, you know, you're not getting much chance to do the loving. But let's not confuse loving with being nice. Let's talk a little bit about your column in The Guardian. It's been fascinating, uh, uh, you know, someone in my job is very interested in how we speak about religion and faith and our deepest values in places where people are generally starting assumption is that religion is no longer relevant. It's a bit of a write-off. How, what have you learned? How have you thought about speaking to that audience? Well, the aim has always been, um, of that column, has always been in some sense evangelistic. Um, It's been evangelistic to the extent that I want to, I presume that the Guardian reader, you know, you have to have a sort of, uh, a certain sort of Guardian reader in mind. You have to have an audience, you know, there's there's lots of different people that read it. But um, so there would be, what was it, Schleiermacher who called them the, you know, religion's cultured despisers. So I think I'm talking to religion's cultured despisers. And what I want to say is, um, look what I can do with this tradition. Uh, I can do things with this tradition that... I think I might surprise you with. Uh, it can go places, it can argue for things uh, that you might not think it can. It's not always there in um, in support of uh, a terribly reactionary ideology, blah, 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 blah. I guess I guess that the background is look what I can do with this tradition. That that that's sort of what I'm trying to do, yeah. which has a sort of sort of evangelistic type of intent, not a converting you, but a helping you to think yeah, again. Think again a little bit, um, and you know I've got it wrong. You can't do that for the length of time I've done it, and not get it wrong lots of times. So you get it wrong all the time, but. Um, you know, you can't be boring either. You know, that's the, that's the thing where you really... So you really do have to sort of be a bit spiky in a column. That's the point yeah. about doing column. I mean, you know, boring column is just not a column. I think it's one of my questions about public debate is it is increasingly opinion-based and columnists are increasingly the best-paid journalist and, you know, the, the most public profile and I have the columnists that I love and read from a, a r- range of perspectives yeah, and yeah. It, is, it is more interesting. It's more human. It's more personal. It's mm. got more personality. Mm. Mm. But the nature of it is you're constantly pushing people week after week, not to get more extreme necessarily, but certainly to remove the, on one hand this and on the other hand that, and, and, and cut out all the nuance. Do you think that's healthy? So this is, the question really is the way in which the philosophy of personal individual choice has affected the way in which we consume news. So we, we, we choose... Uh, to consume news in a particular sort of way. We choose the columnists uh, and we choose them increasingly according to their uh, their, the fact that their convictions match our own. And this is a problem with a culture that sees individual choice as the... the, primary moral value yeah. for me it's a problem of liberalism it's a problem of capitalism it's a it, it's a problem of you know those things that i really dislike um and it's that uh translated into 
enter news um, and and comment. The, the best thing to do is to try and you know try and get a broad really try and get a broad range of opinion read people you don't like i mean you know when people say i get it quite a lot especially with the brexit thing uh, i've stopped agreeing with you so i'm stopped reading you it's like there's just madness you know you should read people you should read people more that you disagree with than that you do agree with yeah um and and it always frustrates me that people read columns to confirm their you know that's what i try try not to do i try not to confirm people's uh views yeah um if i feel i've been doing that too too much it needs to change we're going to take a quick break from that conversation to go to a short update from the theos team I'm now going to talk to Ben Ryan about a project he is doing around migration. But first, Ben, tell us a bit about yourself. How long have you been at Theos? Uh, well, I've been at Theos just over four years. Uh, I'm a researcher here. Um, I cover quite a range of projects, actually. But at the moment, uh, the two kind of big ones are, are these ones on migration and one on universities. And tell me, what were you doing before you came to Theos? Not a lot is the is the honest answer. But uh, uh, kind of more, uh, eventually, if you go back far enough before then, I was doing a master's degree at the LSE uh, in European politics. Uh, and before that, a theology degree at Cambridge. And when you're not theologizing and researching, what do you do? Uh, I lamentably follow Crystal Palace, um, which is enough to make anyone miserable and sad about the state of the world. Ben joined us uh, as an intern four years ago. So uh, we have some upcoming internship interviews. Uh, please do spread the word and get your friend to apply. So tell me about migration. Well, what we wanted to do, this is a collection of essays. What we wanted to do was think about if you take Brexit as, a, as an opportunity moment to really change the way you think about migration. Obviously, lots of people, rightly or wrongly, took migration to be the big issue in the Brexit referendum. It was something that worried them. It was something that concerned them. It was something that they wanted changed. Uh, and fair enough. And this gives you an opportunity now in a kind of new policy horizon where we could completely redraw a, a migration policy from scratch to reflect exactly what it is that people want from such a policy. Uh, and the idea of this collection was, OK, well, what if we were doing that from uh, an ethical, particularly a Christian ethical, but more generally a, an ethical perspective? If you were redrawing all the rules, what would you come up with? And so what we've got is seven uh, contributions. Um, representing a range of political opinions, a range of, uh, of religious and ethical positions, which are trying to answer that question, which are trying to design uh, an ethical approach to immigration policy. And are there any themes coming out of that? I gather there's also quite a lot of disagreement, but is there places that everyone agrees? Uh, I think everyone agrees that we need a new approach to immigration policy. I think on both sides of the political spectrum, the kind of muddling through um, of the past, well, I, I mean, really at least 20 years, uh, where I think the problem which we've identified is there's been a kind of movement where immigration is on the one hand, all about the economics. It's all about how much migrants pay into the system, or it's all about, you know, what, what the cost of that is in terms of benefits or whatever else. Uh, and on the other hand, it's all about integration. It's all about what you expect migrants to do once they get here. What makes someone British? What makes someone allowed to stay? What should the rules be? And the weird thing is those two things uh, aren't actually maximally compatible. You could be massively contributing to the economy and never integrate at all. And conversely, you could integrate almost completely and contribute almost nothing economically. So those two kind of poles which have defined the British approach to immigration, there needs to be a new approach which, which moves us beyond those two incompatible and slightly uh, difficult positions. Uh, and that's, I think, where the collection is going. Um, and I think most of the contributions are looking towards what sort of contribution is required, what sort of right should be expected. Um, so again, 
looking at different polls there, but at least trying to reframe the debate uh, to look at people as people and to look at the situation more broadly than just in terms of the economics of it. And when can people read this collection? Uh, I hope you'll be able to read it in May. Uh, We're working towards kind of finishing it off at the moment, but that's what we're currently aiming for. Where will they be able to access it? Uh, It will be published. It'll be a book uh, title uh, to be decided, but it will be coming out, I would say it's with Jessica Kingsley Publishers. uh, And no doubt you'll be able to find all the details of it on the Theos website as well. Thank you very much, Ben. And now we're going to return to our conversation with Giles Fraser. me about Brexit. Was it always obvious w- that you would be campaigning for Brexit? How long has that kind of been brewing? It wasn't obvious at all. Uh, in fact, uh, I think probably um, if you'd have asked me four or five years ago, I-, I wouldn't really have cared too much. I think, you know, deep down, deep down, the, probably the Brexit stuff was laid by Tony Benn because Tony Benn was uh, someone I loved very dearly and um, was a passionate Brexiter um, from a left-wing perspective. And uh, he and I uh, um, talked quite a lot about the Putney debates and the stuff about the levellers and democracy. That was the church that I was at before. We went to Burford together where the levellers were all shot. And so that idea of democracy being sort of something, and quite direct democracy was something quite, we were quite... Uh, both quite passionate about. Can you just unpack that for me a little bit for listeners who aren't necessarily yes. deeply familiar with the levellers and the Putney Le- debates? Yes. So during the English Civil War um, in 1649, I think it was, the um, some parts of the, of the New Model Army uh, met, met in uh, Putney Church to discuss sort of you know, basically what the country was going to look like when, when uh, they got rid of the king. And uh, one of the options was... Something like democracy, um, and not democracy as we know it now. It wasn't votes for women. It was, but but it was, but it was. Uh, um, There's a great quote from Colonel Rainborough: "The poorest he that is in England hath a life to live as the greatest he, and the the poor should have the vote as well as the rich." It wasn't uh, Cromwell. How do you feel like the debate and the events have gone since the referendum? I, I think it's too early to tell. Um, I think there's always going to be mess. It's always going to be messy. Brexit was always going to be messy. Um, and uh, I think Raphael Baer is a columnist of the Guardian who disagrees with me a lot. Says that the problem with you, Giles, is you just like the sound of breaking glass. And uh, he thinks just that's what you know. That's what personality type. Yeah, it's just like I, I don't mind the chaos. I don't mind the disorder. I don't mind the sort of uh, these sorts of transitional. And I think that's probably. True, I don't mind it. I, I'm not so scared of chaos as a as um as, as a transitional yeah. arrangement. Um, so uh, you know when people say oh, it was going so badly, I say, oh no, I don't see that. Yeah. I don't see that. But presumably, uh, you would be worried if it that chaos was impacting on people's lives in Sunderland. And I don't think it necessarily is. You know, that, who knows I don't what's, know what's I mean, happening. I, who knows what's? I, know. I mean, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, I you know, and who knows who, who knows what would happen the other way as well? I have to say. Um, I mean, when people say. Uh, it'll affect our GDP. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do want to reply. Whose GDP is that? You know, yeah. you know. It, it's not as if the previous uh, arrangement um, was doing particularly well for. You know, there was a, there's, a, there's a story of a, um, it was, it was a, a friend of mine who is a a, uh, um, a Remain campaigner who told this story against herself was in uh, campaigning in in a uh, in Nottinghamshire in a in an estate and said to the person who looked on the door, said, um, 
you know, it could be even worse. You know, you could lose a lot. And this woman sort of gestured to this rundown council sense, yeah, I could lose all of this, couldn't I? Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I just don't think people get that, you yeah. know. So one of the things that's come up in some of the other conversations I've had is how the the role of the sacred, this sense of the things that we hold very dear, that we don't necessarily know um, how to express in that very dry rationalist uh, approach that often public debate falls into when it's not, you know, hot, um, how much that really was surfaced during the Brexit conversations and what could have been quite a procedural kind of geopolitical membership of a international organisation or not turned out to be something much more um, animative for the country. What do you think the sacred values at play were and are? Uh, so I think the sacred values at play are uh, us. So I think it's a. Uh, I think there is um, competing us's, um, and I think us is a so who, whoever the we is whoever the us is um so the it's tribal it's uh that's a pejorative word but but there's uh i think there's non-pejorative ways of talking about it's called community or you know uh you know groups so there are those who are like uh, you are in my group this is my group my group is under threat and this has a sort of uh, this sort of identity and it's under threat from a whole range of sources from capitalism from globalization um and it, and it sort of is you know and you know traditionally we were supported by our social groups uh the elderly were supported by our social groups uh, uh the community but the community is increasingly atomized individualized deracinated and in those contexts people feel massively threatened um you know they either rely on the state either the state has to do all the work um this is the sort of thing that um, you know, um, uh, the uh, radical orthodoxy types have been saying for a long time, and they're right about this. Um, either, you know, either it's a big state or it's sort of like this sort of individualist. And actually there has to be some, well, what David Cameron called before he betrayed it, the big society. And, uh, and that, you know, that's that's rather important. And uh, how ironic that David Cameron started talking about the big society, and yet he's the person that... Uh, Smashed it to bits in a way. Giles, I want to ask you one final question. I want you to tell me, out of 10, how well you think you're do- we're doing with our public conversations and then paint me a picture of what you think it would look like if it was really, really healthy. Look, we're not... I, I, I'd give higher marks, I think, than, than other people would. I think, I think we're doing all right. Um, seven and a half. I think that might be higher than other people um, have given because um, I quite like the richness. I, I don't like the silo conversations, so we need to break out of our silos. I don't like the fact that we're, we're sort of echo chamber stuff. But I like, uh, I, I well, I don't mind the uh, temperature. Temperature's fine. Temperature is a function of, of of different groups meeting each other. And I think if uh, if you can, you know, the great the great thing about Twitter, of course, is you can't actually punch anybody. <laughs> No, 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 it's definitely a win. It's definitely a win. You know, there's quite a lot of there's quite a lot of uh, violent language, but it brings in people who are part of the conversation who are not, you know, who don't who don't do Queensbury rule debates because they haven't been to public school and and uh, haven't learned the sort of rules of the English dinner party and all of that sort of stuff. So no, it's it's a it's a much more democratic type of disorderly, chaotic. Um, uh, spiky conversation. So I don't have quite the anxiety about public conversation. You must see that people who have a different personality type or a different level of comfort with that kind of spiky conversation yes. might therefore be excluded. Yeah, we might be, be we might be 
you know, people who suffer abuse or whatever it is might well be exactly. kept out of That's it. That's right. So, so, so it needs to. So, conversation needs to have its silos in a way. Um, it, it needs to have silos. So, this question is not about whether it has silos. The question is how porous those silos are. So, we we, always, we need to have some people need to sort of safer level of space in which to have conversations. Some people need a more. But, but it's it, the question is about the edges of these and whether they sort of are open to whether they have a, an ear out to the other conversations. And I think that's that's OK. So th- there is no way of imposing a sort of etiquette of civil... You know, there's no... There's no like I've, I've always loathed Esperanto. I've always loathed anything that sort of... I don't like universalism terribly. You know, like the idea that there's one answer to this uh, it's got to be a, a patchwork quilt of, of different perspectives that suit different people, different communities but they have to be porous and listen to each other Thank you for listening to The Sacred, I really hope you enjoyed it and I do hope that you're listening to our previous episodes, do follow us on Twitter at sacred underscore podcast You can tell me directly what you thought at Theos Elizabeth and you can find out more about our work at Theos at theosthinktank.co.uk.